Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Flight Corporal Jack Anderson, and I'm here with Flight Corporal Aiden Paul. How's it going? And the newest member of the Ave Geeks podcast team, Flight Corporal Madeline McConnell. Hi, everyone. All right. So for the very first episode of season two, we have a very interesting topic. We have the Berlin Airlift. So this was one of the largest military uh, operations that was conducted during peacetime. So this was during the Cold War, which wasn't actually a war. Um, It was the standoff between the Soviets and the Western allies. So uh, just quickly before we talk about the airlift itself, we have to talk about the political state of Western Europe following the Second World War. So uh, following World War II, the continent was divided between the democratic Western powers and the communist Eastern ones. This was especially true in the case of Germany, with it being divided amongst the British, French, and Americans in the West and the Soviets in the East. It was also agreed that Berlin would be divided in much the same way, despite the fact that it was deep in Soviet territory. However, this left the Western sector of Berlin quite vulnerable, as it would now have to rely on Stalin's good word not to block the roads and the rail lines. And let's be honest, this is Stalin we're talking about. He's never kept his word, I don't think, once. No, so I think we, I think we all see where this is heading. Um, so, first of all, we need to talk also about the uh, difference in doctrine that they had going on uh, when they were ruling over Germany. So the Western allies acknowledged that political extremists by the likes of Hitler and the Nazis had come to power as a result of the harsh reparations from the First World War in combination with the Great Depression, which had essentially just wiped out Germany's entire economy. So their, their main focus was on rebuilding the German economy so that something like that wouldn't happen again. However, the Soviets wanted revenge, and they also wanted to make Germany a puppet state to block the influence of capitalism, which was uh, sorry, rapidly spreading across uh, Europe. All right, so after the war, the German economy was completely decimated. The bombing campaigns of the RAF and the U.S. Army Air Force had destroyed most of the industrial centers of the country, and even years after the war, when this story takes place in 1948, unemployment was high, currency was worthless, and most people lived in extreme poverty. Um, like, I don't think a lot of people really realize how bad it was in uh, Germany following World War II. My grandma actually grew up during that time, and she told me that what they had to do was they took all their money and they'd burn it instead of buying coal because the money was just completely worthless. There's actually a pretty similar situation. Like to get a like to get a kind of a perspective here, after World War One, for example, in 1923, a single Papiermark, Germany's primary currency at the time, 5.72 billion Papiermarks was equal to one U.S. dollar at the time. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And after World War II, it would have just been worse. Yeah, it would have been much worse. Because, in fact, at that time, Germany wasn't even really a country. It was occupied by the four main powers from the Second World War. So, yeah, Germany didn't really exist. Not really too good for a country's economy. Uh, so the Allies had actually tried enacting currency reforms to fix these. But these efforts were sabotaged by the Soviets because... As I previously stated, the Soviets wanted revenge. They wanted the German people to be as poor and to suffer as much as they possibly could. So in 1948, the Allies met again to try and form a new currency in the form of the Deutschmark. 
They also secretly discussed the possibility of forming a West German nation. When Stalin found out about this, he was furious and he left the Allies for power council. In addition, on the 23rd of June, 1948, Soviet soldiers blocked the route to Berlin and the electrical station for the city, which was located in the Soviet Eastern sector, cut off the power. So the Berlin airlift had officially begun. Or sorry, not the Berlin airlift itself, but the pretext for what would cause it. So President Truman of the US uh, met with all of his generals and they gave him three options. They could either pull the US forces out of Berlin and let the Soviets take it. They could leave their forces there until they collapsed due to lack of resources, or they can send in the army to clear the roads. However, that one would start another world war. His main generals advised him that they should pull out of Berlin. And Truman responded saying, we stand Berlin, period. The president suggested that they fly in the supplies. After all, the only way to block a plane is to shoot it down. And if that happened, it would mean the Soviets were the aggressors and the instigators. And most of the international community would probably take their side. And on top of that, you're shooting down a, at the time, still friendly, friendly plane. Like that's straight up an act of war. So again, World War Three. Exactly. So I think what the big thing the Soviets um, didn't want, or I think what no one wanted there, they didn't want to be seen as the ones starting World War Three. I think um, they all knew it had to happen or. Most of them knew that they needed it to happen for their country, but none of them wanted to start it because they didn't want to be seen as the, uh, the aggressors, the instigators, pretty much the bad guys. So uh, Truman suggested that they fly in the supplies. Now, the generals protested this profusely, saying that it was completely impossible. But that's when Britain's RAF stepped in. So over the war, Britain had been cut off to foreign trade completely by the German U-boats. And as a result, they had become quite good at rationing supplies. Their officers calculated that it would take 4,000 tons of food and fuel per day to keep Berlin alive. This would mean that there would have to be approximately 1,300 flights per day. And the Americans were the only ones with that type of capacity. Now, with British support, Truman's generals decided to go along with the plan. And so on June 26, 1948, the first flight of Operation, uh, I think that's Vittels, it's... Uh, German words are a little confusing, um, but it was called Operation Vittles, and it was the start of the Berlin airlift. So they took off from bases in England and West Germany. However, in these first stages, they only took about 80 tons of supplies with them each day. Now, the Soviet anti-aircraft guns didn't fire, and it appeared that their gamble had paid off because Stalin was threatening that if Americans encroached on Soviet airspace, they would be shot down. That didn't happen because Stalin knew that he couldn't do it. So there weren't enough pilots and aircraft for this operation, though. The Air Force tried to solve this problem by bringing in new air wings from bases all over the world, even faraway places such as Guam, which is on the other side of the world. It's all the way in the South Pacific, which is absolutely insane. So Two weeks into the airlift, only about 1,000 tons of cargo was being delivered per day, which was about a quarter of what was required. This is not to mention that the U.S.'s base at Tempelhof was in very poor condition. So this was the main airport for the U.S. military in Berlin. 
And often ground crews would have to go out with uh, rocks and clay and cement, and they'd have to repatch the runway in between the flights. Again, that is absolutely crazy. The only thing we have close to that in Canada is when they have to go out with snow shovels during the winter. But still, to go out and have to reconcrete a runway in between flights, that is completely unheard of. Uh, not only that, but it gets worse. Tempelhof gets a lot worse. There was actually an apartment building that stood on the approach path. And landing gear from planes would frequently come less than 20 feet away from the roof. Which, again, that is completely insane. There's no other airport like that in the world. I'm also fairly certain that's illegal today. Like, um, either they'd move the airport somewhere else or they'd demolish that apartment building. There is, there is no way that that would be allowed in this day and age. I'm just, I'm just wondering if, I'm just wondering what, way, what Berlin was thinking when they built that airport, like, before the war. And they had that apartment building made. Well, I think like, um, I think was... during the war, they sort of ran out of airplanes and pilots. So they sort of thought, might as well build an apartment building if the airport's not being used. But again, that's like someone building an apartment building around Pearson during the pandemic, which would be completely insane. Right. Yeah, I agree, especially when it comes to like taking off and landing. Having that apartment building in the way would be super, super tricky. I don't know what they were thinking when they came up with that one, but whatever. Yeah, well, then again, like you said, like you said, during the war, it didn't exactly have all that many pilots. Let's figure, yeah, I might as well build an apartment, apartment building. And also, might as well. We're, yeah, we're going to demolish, we're going to completely demolish Berlin after we win the war anyway. Why the hell not? Yeah, I mean, why ever plan into the future thinking that maybe one day we'll need the airport again, but nope. I mean, um, to be fair, Hitler com- to be fair, Hitler wanted to completely replace Berlin, but that, that's a good point. But getting back to the topic here, right? Despite all of these problems, the airlift actually boosted morale and brought people together. So people from all over the world sent care packages to the people of Berlin, even people from London, England, who had been bombed real heavy by the Germans during World War II, they, just, they set aside those wartime grudges and they started sending food, money, stuff like that over to Germany, which really shows how this brought people together. Now, mechanics from both the US Air Force and the Royal Air Force volunteered in large numbers to go to Germany to help in any way they could. And the German people who had previously been aggressive toward the airline sorry, allied pilots who had bombed their cities, now gave them gifts and beer. That that was pretty cool. I mean, that completely changed the German opinions of their pilots because they went from uh, bombing their cities to really helping them out there. However, this was, this was a pretty chaotic operation. There wasn't really any organization going on. So the White House decided to send someone to help organize it. They sent General William Tunner, who had run an airlift over the Himalayas into occupied China during World War II. He got to work organizing it right away. First, he created a strict schedule. Planes would take off and land at three-minute intervals. When they landed, the crews would have 30 minutes to unload before taking off again. He also assigned five altitudes for planes to fly at, which maximized the number that they could have airborne at any given time. He also replaced the exhausted Air Force pilots with new ones from the U.S. Navy and changed out the C-47s for larger C-54s. 
He also made up for the ground crew shortages by hiring German civilians to unload planes and former Luftwaffe mechanics to help with repairs. So I said before that they set apart wartime uh, grudges. This is taking it to a whole new level. You're taking people from the German Air Force and from the US and the British Air Force and you're putting them to work together. And it actually worked, which is absolutely crazy. Yeah, I gotta, gotta agree. I'm like When I read that, I was honestly very surprised that they made it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, it is shocking because you would not think that, because uh, this, this happened during 1948. So that's three years after World War II. So it had been just three years since these men had been shooting at each other pretty much, uh, or they'd been repairing aircraft to bomb each other. And now they were working with each other. That is truly amazing. You really don't see stuff like that anymore. Well, it seemed that all of these changes worked because on August 12th, they delivered 4,500 tons, meeting the requirements for the very first time. Also around this time, it was discovered that one of the pilots named Gail Halverson had been dropping candy to the children of Berlin with homemade parachutes. He earned the nickname, the Berlin Candy Bomber, and Uncle Wiggly Wings for how he would wiggle the wings of his C-54 to the kids to tell which plane he was in. General Tunner saw the PR potential and ordered them to be increased. He also sent Halverson home on a publicity tour. These efforts paid off and he became the public face of the airlift, which again, that is not something you normally see. You see um, uh, like heroes during the war, like um, you'd hear all about these ace pilots who had shot down tons of planes, but I honestly can't think of another time in history where they thought of great heroes who had um, done something like this, where they had flown supplies in somewhere. I honestly can't think of one. Can you, Paul or McConnell? Can't say I have, no. Me neither. Okay. Say, actually, um, the cool thing about um, Gail Halverson here is he's actually still alive, and you can find interviews with him on the internet. Yeah, he is an amazing guy. I was just watching a video a while back. He was celebrating his 100th birthday. So good for him. He's a great guy, true hero. Now, let's start talking about uh, the winter because the winter would be a massive problem for these aircraft. So when it arrived, it brought with it awful weather conditions. That year, there was more fog than usual. In fact, sometimes it was so thick, the ground crews crawled to avoid walking into an unseen propeller, which again, that is not something that you really see today. Sure, you see a lot of fog, but you don't really see it to the point where ground crews are walking or sorry, crawling around on the ground for fear that they get sucked into an engine. Right. Mm -hmm. So during this time, the number of aircraft colliding with each other and the ground skyrocketed. Despite these treacherous conditions, they're still able to make it through. And on New Year's Eve of 1948, they delivered over 6,000 tons, setting a new record for the airlift. Which, again, the fact that they did this in the winter is completely amazing. You also have to remember that they didn't have all the modern technology that aircraft today have. Like, um, they have weather radars, they they have de-icers, so these aircraft were flying through storms their engines would probably get shut down from all the ice they were intaking. Um, You'd also have no way of seeing out there, like aircraft today, again, they have uh, radars on them and they have special computers that can guide them right into the runway. These guys had none of that stuff. 
they had a map, a compass, and they had to try and guess where the airport was. And somehow they were able to do that, which yep. is completely amazing. Yeah, well, well, they've probably gotten used to those conditions during the war. Yeah, yeah. So, again, it's it's great that you have, um, I mean, it's not great that World War II happened, but in this scenario where you had uh, really hard conditions, you definitely needed pilots who were battle tested. Uh, that was definitely, again, I don't want to say it was a good thing that it happened, but it was good that they got the experience for it to happen. Right. And then as winter passed and the weather improved, funnily enough, the airlift actually began transporting more supplies than the Allies had using the railway. I want you to think about that for a second, because trains, they can go in any weather. They can load up. They can be like three miles long in some cases versus this tiny little airplane. So the fact that they were able to start delivering more supplies than they had by road and by rail is truly an astounding feat. Now, Stalin was starting to see that not only was the blockade not affecting West Berlin, it was actually starting to have a negative impact on the East because Soviet factories were cut off from the supplies that they needed from the West. So a lot of factories in East Berlin, they completely shut down, went out of business because they didn't have the raw materials from West Berlin. So with all of this, on May 12, 1949, the Soviet troops moved the roadblocks and let the Allied trucks and trains through again. This road would never close for the rest of the Cold War, which, again, is truly amazing that with this one event, they were able to secure that lifeline for the rest of the war. Because right. Cold War, it went on for about 40 uh, years. Pardon? About 40, 50 years. Yeah, 40, 50 honest. years. That, that sounds about right. But for 50 years, they were able to drive their trucks and their trains through hostile territory and not once were they fired upon. That is amazing. Yeah, especially considering the tensions that rose after the Berlin airlift. Exactly. So this event was actually seen as the declaration of the Cold War, as it laid out exactly how it would be played. Because not a single shot was fired during this entire event, but it brought the world right to the brink of World War III. And that, that happened countless times throughout the Cold War. You have the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Korean all the Afghanistan, tons the Korean of... Korean War, all that stuff. Right, the Korean War too. Forgot about that one. I feel like everyone forgets about that one. But um, yeah, so it, it really, it dictated how the Cold War would play out. So it was a very important event in history. Uh, so over the 11 months that it operated, the airlift delivered approximately 2.4 million tons of cargo, which, again, is absolutely insane. We've said that a lot throughout this episode, but it is true. The numbers, the number of cargo that they delivered throughout this campaign was truly astounding. It has never been seen before in history, and I really don't think it's ever been seen since then, too. So after all of that, 79 Allied aircrew and German civilians were killed during the airlift. So, yeah, there was there was quite a large uh, amount of casualties from this. So uh, it did definitely have a negative impact on that front. But um, with all that, Stalin's greatest fear throughout the whole thing was the creation of an independent West German nation. But this event had completely fueled it because 
he showed that he was more than willing to starve the people of West Berlin, and he had spurred on its creation. Worse still, just one month before the end of the blockade, the nations of Western Europe and North America signed the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, better known as NATO, which was designed specifically to counter the threat of communism. And although the city would never be blockaded again, just 12 years later came the Berlin Wall, dividing it in half for nearly 30 years. Now, with all that, that is just about our time limit for tonight. We'd like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Uh, so we'll see you next time. Have a good night, everyone. Have a good one. Bye, everyone.